Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week we'll be doing something a little bit different as I'm going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Vince Bantu. And so this will not have Tom and Trevor, and nor will this be the Africans Against the World stream of the class that I was teaching, uh, but this will just be a conversation that I have with Dr. Bantu about, in part, about his book, A Multitude of All Peoples, uh, recently published with InterVarsity Press, A Multitude of All Peoples Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Um, and uh, Dr. Bantu is a professor at Fuller Seminary. He is also the head of the Meacham School of uh, Hamanot, uh, as, and I will be teaching there as well, actually, this fall. That's how I got to know Dr. Bantu. Um, so I'm really excited about this interview because it uh, both combines some of uh, Dr. Bantu's more uh, academic pursuits, but also tells about his story of faith a little bit and about how he sees his historical and missiological research as a kind of evangelical tool um, for people, uh, especially um, black and African-American people, uh, and how the the recognition that Christianity is a global religion and has its roots in ancient Africa and Asia, how this is important because this is uh, the gospel is not just Eurocentric. It is not just a Western creation. It existed long before uh, uh, those kind of ideas. So um, I think this will be a really interesting conversation. Um, I hope that you enjoy it. So if you uh, have any comments, please feel free to leave them on the Facebook page. Um, and I hope to be doing more kinds of interviews as we go along. I'm trying to work some of those out. But um, anyway, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with Dr. Bantu about his book and about his research and uh, even his life of faith and how he sees that, uh, those things overlapping. So I hope you appreciate this conversation and uh, look, for, look out for a copy of his book. You know, you can get it at places where books are sold. Um, that is a multitude of all peoples engaging ancient Christianity's global identity. So here's my conversation with Dr. Vince Bantu. But anyway, uh, I have with me today uh, Vince Bantu, and he has a new book that was just released in March, it looks like, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Um, and Dr. I, I guess Professor and Dr. Vince Bantu is a professor of church history and black church studies at Fuller. Um, he is also uh, the head of a, um, of a really interesting um, theological school, the uh, Meacham School of Hamanot, uh, where I will be teaching actually some Hebrew as well this coming year. Uh, and that's a pretty a neat uh, 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 initiative in St. Louis um, to try to help. Uh, let's see, he says he provides theological education for urban pastors and leaders. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty excited uh, to just be a little small part of that uh, with Dr. Bantu. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I've read part. Uh, I haven't read uh, every single word, but I've looked over uh, his new book and really found it fascinating. It is. Um, I mean, I'll let uh, uh, Vince say what he how he kind of imagines the audience, but it's it's in the academic um, side of things, and it is. <laughs> I I was like, uh, you know, I guess even even as an academic who uses footnotes, I was like, man, Vince did his research. Um, like it's, you know, unpublished dissertation level, like, I mean, for, you know, such a disparate amount of sources. I mean, I could almost just start maybe by asking, like, how did you go about tackling such a diverse set of languages, texts, 
Um, you know, I mean, like I focused just on Latin, um, North African Christianity and St. Augustine. And here, you know, you're, you know, I know this is more than your dissertation, but man, you cover a lot of ground. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that, I mean, that, that alone impressed me, but, but even more than that, I think the book uh, is going to be really helpful for people who want to, uh, see the church, see the Christian church for what it is much, much broader, um, than, than sort of a Western, um, Western European religion, which it's come to be known for various reasons, part, some of which you outlined in the book. Uh, but yeah, how, how, how was that tackling this broad of a subject? Yeah, no, well, I, I appreciate, yeah, appreciate the, yeah, the compliments and, um, yeah, hope, uh, uh, yeah, hope, hopefully it will be helpful. And I, I was pretty nervous, especially about really trying to approach uh, areas that I'm not as familiar with. And, um, and, you know, even before we were talking a little bit about our academic background and, you know, I think one thing that was helpful was uh, the background that I had. Um, I, I originally got like hooked into a lot of this, um, you know, early Christianity, especially in, in Africa when I, and I was originally interested in Coptic and the history of the Coptic church, but then I ended up doing my uh, graduate studies at the Catholic University of America, and they they have a department there uh, for uh, Christian Oriental research and and uh, and you know languages that are from the uh, kind of this part of the world, like early Christian languages from the Middle East and Africa, and and so that I think that helped me to really have uh, a little bit of a broader uh, understanding of different communities, like in in like. Uh, that were kind of connected to the early Coptic speaking world, but also the early Syriac Christian uh, context and the different cultures and languages that it, that it connected to. But, um, but also I, I was really, uh, I was really blessed to uh, just have some relationships with people that I could uh, with it, you know, with it being kind of like you said, like a hybrid book of something that is um, kind of, uh, you know, academic, like certainly on undergraduate and maybe even on a graduate, like, uh, you know, kind of uh, cl like a survey class would be maybe helpful. Um, uh, that not as not as deep as maybe specialists in these different areas, but but it was really helpful to have some of those specialists look at some of those chapters, especially you know in areas where I'm I'm wanting to learn more myself about like you know early Christianity and the Sogdian language or or uh, Persian or uh, or Chinese or some of these different areas that I really don't have a whole lot of expertise in, but just some general knowledge because of my my work with Syriac. And so it was really helpful to also have some of them looking at it and giving me some um, uh, some tips and some some feedback. And that, that yeah, I think that was that was that was helpful as well. Awesome. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, a couple of the things you, you even mentioned there were some of the questions that I had while I was reading. Um, but well, so you were your uh, PhD is actually at the the program was called Semitic and uh, Egyptian languages. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. At, uh, at Catholic U in DC, there they they have this department. Um, that's that actually goes back to the founding of the university, and uh, you know one of the founding presidents had like a strong, also a strong interest in research background and in, in in what they call I guess uh, Oriental Christianity, and I think that's a bit of a of a dated and uh, <laughs> problematic term in uh, like modern parlance, but but you know you know we even in even a lot of churches and heritage communities use the the term Oriental Orthodoxy, and so it's yeah it's like a it's an it's an academic department, uh, the Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages. Um, and then also it's the Institute for Christian Oriental Research that that uh, co-publishes the uh, the CSCO volume, the Corpus Scriptorium Christianorum Orientalium, which is, mm. you know, probably the best uh, best resource out there and the, really in the world for 
for publishing, editing and, and, and publishing and translating into modern languages, uh, a lot of these texts that are from these different languages. And, and then it's also a, the department there at Catholic U is also a rare collections library um, where there's a lot of manuscripts. And, um, and I, I feel really jealous because it was actually after I graduated pretty semi-recently uh, in 2015 that it was like right after that, that we actually, we already had a lot of, you know, different uh, Coptic and Syriac and Christian Arabic manuscripts. But, but uh, right after I graduated, they actually got a, a large amount, I think maybe the largest in the United States uh, of, uh, of Ethiopic manuscripts uh, in, okay. you know, uh, and then, and so now there's now now that our little our little modest department there is actually now one of the the centers in the U.S. for Ethiopic manuscripts. So uh, yeah. I was a little, I'm a little jealous. They waited until I graduated. I, was, I kind of feel like when I was growing up and uh, when I when I grew up and moved away for college, I felt like that was when my parents started really fixing up the house and making it nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, well, one of my questions, like just looking at your your book, like I, I was actually surprised at first. Um, that it was uh, the the term missiology was associated with it because I I knew that you'd done some sort of uh, like like you say the uh, um, research at Catholic U which was more church history or sometimes you know well I guess it's not a, a sort of like uh, early Christian studies um, that sort of thing patristics and I nobody there nobody in my program ever talks about missi missiology um, so I was familiar with Andrew Wall's uh, work because of a uh, PhD seminar I took while I was at Princeton Seminary with Rich, uh, Dr. Young and uh, Richard Young. And we we did a little bit of Andrew Walls. And so we called that missiology. Um, and that's what Andrew Walls is kind of uh, famous for. Um, so, you know, could you just talk a little bit about the overlap and why these two disciplines don't often talk to each other or think about themselves as associated? I mean, like once I was reading your book, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this is fairly self-evident that missiology and church history are overlapping and even reading a little bit of walls and sauna, you see that, but that's just not something at least at SLU that we talked about very often, or even a kind of word that I hear very much at say the North American Patristic Society. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And, um, it was, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. We were, we were talking earlier about our kind of common history at Princeton and, um, another Princeton grad, who um, was one of my editors for this book is, is Scott Sunquist, and uh, we we just um, we just missed each other actually because he he was the dean of the School of Intercultural Studies at Fuller, where I'm teaching now. But he actually, as I was entering, he same year he actually just went to uh, become the president of my, of my alma mater. So so much cross cross con uh, connections. But he's now the new president at Gordon Conwell Seminary, and I was so privileged uh, that he was the closest editor that was really looking at this book. Um, and that that did the closest read of uh, or just the closest kind of amounts of content editing and, and interacting with the ideas of the book. I, I, I couldn't have had a better uh, choice for that because really and I, he's someone I looked up to for a long time and read a lot of his work. And, and because he he, he made that I'm aware of, he's the only other scholar that 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 kind of rides that same fence of of early Christianity and missiology, but like specifically early Christianity uh, in like the Syriac and kind of Near Eastern Christian uh, history. Um, he also, yeah, I mentioned Princeton because he also was a graduate. He got his PhD from Princeton uh, and um, and he, you know, his, he's a specialist also on Syriac and early Syriac Christianity, but he was, you know, he's also much of his writing, the majority of it has been in missiology. And so it's been really cool to, uh, 
kind of uh, following his footsteps in, in bridging those things together. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in an even deeper way, I think, at least in publishing, because a lot of his work has been more focused on more contemporary and modern missiology. And I, I uh, really, really like him also, uh, in a similar way, want to bridge those two things. And, and I, I almost just feel like the the missiology side of it is 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 kind of just coming from my my background i mean obviously as you mentioned like my i mean i you know like you mentioned the you know naps and a lot of the different you know i guess academic societies that i that i run in are often um you know early christianity where like you said there's not a whole lot of interest or or talk about missiology um and uh but I just feel like the missiological side of it the, or the way that I approach early Christianity is from a really missiological standpoint. I, I just think it has to do with my upbringing as a as a Christian, you know, growing up as a young believer in St. Louis, you know, like yourself and and then going to Wheaton and Gordon Conwell and and, and you know, coming into um, uh, coming into my graduate studies. I just the, the, the whole reason I even got into got interested in this uh, whole history is actually, I think, a similar reason as to why, uh, at least from what I've been seeing, most of the people who've been interested in reading the book are also interested in it, which is like uh, people are, I think, you know, people are, um, you know, especially in the African-American community like myself, are uh, really interested in the idea that Christianity uh, has been a global religion from the beginning, because uh, especially for folks in the African-American community, uh, you know, when we, especially those that are wrestling with issues of like Christianity and cultural identity, um, you know, there's a common perception, uh, especially in non in non Christian uh, context in the Black community, that Christianity is a white man's religion. Uh, that and the inescapable reality that that the introduction of Christianity for African American people was in slavery and in colonialism. And so, and, and you know, I, I've also I also work a lot with a lot of indigenous communities, and and there's a similar dynamic there, where again, uh, Christianity is associated with uh, again the reality that its introduction into indigenous communities in the Americas. Um, and in South Pacific uh, was, you know, was through colonialism and, and oppression. And so there's this there's this ugly history. And there's sometimes there can be this uh, kind of totalizing concept that that that's all that Christianity is, that Christianity in, in its core is essentially just an extension of of Western colonialism. And so um, so for me, when I, uh, I, I already being interested in issues of missiology and and contextualization and again, in college and in under and in seminary, I was like very much interested in um, wanting to combat this idea as a pastor and as a as a Christian and as a as a as a as a um, and, and as an evangelist. Uh, I just was really um, and, and I guess as a beginning theologian, I was just really interested in how can we uh, as Christians and as academics really com combat this idea and really uh, understand and present the fullness of what Christianity is. And and when I when I was in my first year of seminary at Gordon Conwell, I took a trip to Egypt and that was my first introduction to this whole this whole branch of history. I mean, beginning again with with Egypt, but then again, that kind of snowballed and opened up into all these other uh, branches of Christian history. And I and I was just uh, I, I felt like I found my answer. <laughs> I felt like I found, um, you know, like the. Uh, the, the, the answer I was looking for, because again, my, and I, I was also, you know, in seminary, you mentioned Andrew Walls, like Laman Sana, uh, Philip Jenkins, like a lot of these, these writers, uh, you know, Niebuhr, a lot of these different missiologists were very much framing a lot of my concerns and passions for the need for contextualization and the need to uh, represent Christianity in the fullness of what it is. And I think the thing that I found most appealing about the ancient history was that, um, you know, a lot of even even a lot of missiologists, uh, people I respect and are, are my heroes. I think sometimes there's a there can there can be uh, almost maybe an, an accidental 
um, uh, kind of uh, re uh, kind of recentering things on the West where we and, and I think all, you know, uh, all, you know, institutions of theological education, I think sometimes we struggle with this where we often talk about missiology or global Christianity or world Christianity or, you know, questions of contextualization. We often talk about those in the modern world. And we, I mean, we even, we even structure classes that way. Like kind of, we, we have classes on early Christianity, medieval Christianity, reformation. And then it's not till the modern world where we start talking about global Christianity or world Mm -hmm. Christianity. And I think that was what really took me with this is to say that maybe my, the book is meant to kind of be a helpful addition to that missiological corpus and say, Hey, like, you know, questions of missiology and questions of global Christianity are not only modern concerns, but that, but that actually is an ancient conversation as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, indeed. I, I thought it was, uh, it was definitely a, a, a cool way to see, um, some of the stuff that I had read, uh, framed, you know, in that, uh, in that way with talking a bit about the the uh, the way that it spread and the the indigenization question um so one uh like one other thing that you that you tackle in this uh in this work and it comes some of it comes even in the conclusion too uh but you sort of you you ask this uh you put you put it also in the frame of um sort of political theory or social theory and you talk a little bit about identity politics and how that has um created the misperception uh, the the false notion that uh, Christianity is a white Western European religion. So could you talk a little bit about, uh, t- you know, how you became sort of, um, d- was that just sort of an interest, interest of your own that you were reading? Um, because again, you know, if I think about like, how, like I said, how I was sort of trained, we, had, we didn't talk about identity politics uh, very much in the ancient world. We didn't talk about political or social theory all that much. It was just who was in power, you know, what did they, what was the theological question, that sort of thing. Um, a lot less about, a lot, you know, not with the same sort of frame. Um, so could could you talk a little bit about that? I, I really thought that was, uh, was an interesting and helpful way to um, look at it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I that that's a great question, and and yeah, I I, I mean, I I kind of, I, I similarly, um, you know, in in a lot of my um, you know, training as well, uh, didn't you know, didn't see that um, that framing as well, and so it's almost been like, yeah, the the missiological um, kind of values and um, and uh, kind of interest in just in me as a Christian uh, are really, and then also me, you know, being trained as a you know, as a uh, um, as a historian and someone who works with languages and literatures in in early Christianity, uh, those those definitely were not. I mean, even like um, and I and I had a great time and I really loved my my mentors and, and advisors at Catholic U. But I mean, yeah, certainly uh, with with me bringing anthropological and missiological uh, methodology even into my dissertation and my studies uh, in like early. Uh, Egyptian and early Coptic Christology, which is my dissertation topic. But then, but fusing that with anthropological methodology was definitely something that even my advisors were kind of like, well, yeah, that's kind of Vince's thing. And we'll, but I was, again, I was blessed to like, even that they allowed me, empowered me to do it. But it was definitely a bridge that I was kind of almost, I felt like I was kind of just making, you know, uh, just by the, the leading of the Lord. And, <laughs> and, that was it. and, and, um, 
and yeah, it really, I mean, it, 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 but it really was a, lead, a, a move of the Lord because I, you know, my, um, uh, uh, yeah, again, my, all my, my scholarship and my interest in early Christianity are pretty much rooted completely in uh, my desire for evangelism and sharing the gospel and, and in ministry. And again, it's really kind of, it, it really comes down to um, really wanting to, uh, you know, help help people to know that, again, Christianity is for them, that the gospel is for them, and that the Christian tradition has been diverse since day one. That's pretty much the the pretty uh, like narrow uh, focus that my interest in early Christianity kind of stays within and all of my all of my interests. I mean, you mentioned Augustine, and I'd love, I'd love to talk to you later about this project I'm working on right now about just, you know, the whole question about Augustine and, and Donatism and the, you know, and the whole friend theory and like, um, but, you know, that's something that that's of interest to me because that cuts to the core of questions about, again, identity, identity politics and Christianity and, um, and, and, the, and it's kind of the, the question of, you know, the role of, of ethnic and cultural identity uh, in, in Christianity and, and so that's the kind of stuff I usually get attached to. And it really goes again, it goes back to just, you know, my my testimony and background as a Christian. You know, I, when I was growing up in the um, in the west side of St. Louis, uh, I, um, you know, I, uh, you know, you know, grew up in you know in the 80s and in an urban you know context. And I came to know the Lord. And um, and, you know, that was like, you know, in the uh, that was kind of a that was kind of like uh, in the in the generation where uh, like urban and suburban flight was at its like kind of uh, fullness and the you know the urban context was a was a very um you know kind of just uh desolate oppressed area and of uh, and stripped of resources but like gentrification hadn't really got kind of uh, picked up yet and so um and so you know the, the the hood was kind of a very you know was a was a was a rough context and 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 the and and you know uh the church um was um really and this is i think a struggle we still have but the church was just very culturally irrelevant uh to a lot of people you know coming up in the west side of st louis and um and uh and 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 you know again that was again that was in the 80s before we really had the advent of like christian hip-hop and and a lot of great people who would eventually really be instrumental for me uh people like cross movement or reach records or uh you know different different um artists african-american christian artists who who really uh showed um people like myself that you can you can follow jesus and you can be of the hood culture at the same time and that was not a message that i heard growing up in fact i heard the opposite message that you can either follow jesus or you can be a part of the hood culture that you are and so i just grew up always feeling that who i was culturally uh was wrong that everything about it was wrong and to be sure i mean this gets into walls right there's the you know there's the pilgrim principle and the indigenizing principle right the, mm -hmm. the gospel embraces culture and it, and it also transforms culture and there's a lot of things about hood culture like every culture that needs to be transformed and does not does not square up with the gospel but there's also a lot of good things about hood culture and i i was just under the teaching and the and the impression that everything about it was wrong and that if i was going to follow jesus i needed to just reject all of it and so i eventually when i felt called to ministry i did that i i went through a cultural transformation where i just felt like uh, my call to ministry was one that you know needed to entail in rejecting my culture, and I and I would try to share the gospel with with other friends of mine in high school in the urban community, and they just were not going for it. And I always just kind of put that on them, saying, "Oh, well, that's just because you don't want to let go of your sin, you don't want to let go of your lifestyle, you don't want to follow Jesus." But I, I I was I think I was blinded to the fact that 
that I was asking them to do something that I did, which was reject who they were and reject their identity. And that's not something Jesus asked, ever asked me to do. And that's not something Jesus asks uh, anyone to do uh, completely. But that's something that the Christian tradition uh, in many iterations does and has asked people to do. I mean, again, going back to the history of Native American boarding schools where, you know, so-called missionaries were uh, spreading the so-called gospel to indigenous people, uh, but then forbidding them from speaking their language and forcing them to speak European languages and, and wear European clothes and wear their hair in European styles and literally corporally punish them if they spoke their own indigenous language. And so we have the, you know, we have I think maybe less um, uh, intense or less obvious expressions of that still going on today uh, in the in the church, and so that's really where a lot of this kind of came from. And 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 really, um, I, I just I mean the the, the verse that really uh, the the passage that really sticks out to me in that time period it was like actually my uh, when I, like my first or second year of college where I really was encouraged by uh, the word of the Lord in Acts ten when when God. Um, called, when God revealed himself and, and, and to the first Gentile Christian Cornelius, um, but God had to first teach Peter that, that the message of that, the prophecy of, of the gospel of God's kingdom being revealed to outside of Israel was being fulfilled that God had to help Peter understand when he told him to kill and eat. And he said, uh, well, and Peter said, well, I won't, I don't want to touch anything that's not clean. And God told Peter, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And, and that was really the, the message that the Lord was telling me uh, that Vince, do not call your hood culture, which I have redeemed, do not call it in and of itself unclean because I've actually embraced it. And I've, you know, uh, I've called it unto myself and the multitude of all peoples that I'm that I'm making uh, includes the hood. <laughs> and, and right. you know, there will be hip hop in heaven and there will be, you know, John looked up and saw every tribe, nation and tongue. And that included people break dancing and 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 spray painting and. And 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 turning records, and that that includes all cultures. And so, uh, so anyway, that that was kind of my uh, that that was kind of the the you know the 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 interest or the the personal kind of stake that I have in it. And and again, with a lot of especially with a lot of um, religions in the black culture and in the black in that again in that I think it's interesting that in the in the hood culture, I would say two very very marginalized communities, the hood and prison. Uh, those are two very marginal communities in which, especially in the African American community alternative religions that are very against Christianity are very, very popular and very enticing. That it's in prison or in the projects where many people, uh, again, because of the historical reality, say, well, I don't want anything to do with Christianity and I'm going to, you know, go to, I'm going to become a Hebrew Israelite or, or a five percenter or the, you know, Moorish science temple or, or the nation of Islam or, uh, or conscious community, what, you know, all these different movements that all have different theologies, different cosmologies, different, uh, you know, different traditions that would not agree with each other. But the one thing they do agree on is that we want nothing to do with Christianity because it's a white Western religion. It's a slave religion and we want nothing to do with it. And they love looking at ancient history. So a lot of us as Protestants, black or white, we don't know a lot about ancient history, but a lot of these groups, they love looking at ancient history and they love making claims like, uh, well, you know, no Christian ever believed in the doctrine of, of Jesus's divinity until the Roman emperor Constantine created it at the Council of Nicaea and then imposed it upon the world. And or, you know, all Christians were Greek and Latin and they all came from the Roman Empire and Christianity was just uh, an invention of the Roman Empire and a, and, and, and a mechanism for Constantine to conquer in the name of the cross. And, and they, so they make all these claims that are mixed and kind of, you know, lies mixed with truth. 
And 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 yet and again, uh, most a lot of a lot of just typical Christians, even in the urban church, uh, don't know how to respond to claims like that. So again, the, the hope is that the book can really uh, engage some of those uh, some of those ancient claims um, apologetically, but th- but but also again instill instill a pride and instill a um, a sense of that you know like people of African descent and 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 Asian descent have been uh, central to the to the history of the church uh, from the beginning. Yeah. Wow. That, that is, uh, that's, I mean, that's such a fascinating thing. I mean, in part because I grew up in St. Louis too. Um, so it's kind of cool to hear someone else's story, uh, that has so many different elements to my own. Uh, one of the things that always strikes me, I grew up in Chesterfield, um, and Chesterfield, I, I, like I went to first Baptist church of Ellisville, um, and Chesterfield Baptist church. We drove by it every day when I went to the ice rink, I played hockey um, and I, we knew almost nothing about Chesterfield, um, except for it was actually a little bit closer than Ellisville, uh, where I went and it's an all black church. Um, and we just, we never went there. We never had anything to do with it. Um, and it was always sort of strange to me. I was like, you know, uh, well, I should say always strange to me. I noticed it, you know, I knew it was there. Um, and then I, you know, one time I think I asked my dad and he's like, oh, I don't really know much about it. I think it's a black church. And, you know, and that was it. That was all we ever talked about. Um, and, you know, sorry to talk about like um, sort of even uh, like ancient American history. I went to the mall in Chesterfield all the time, uh, but I didn't even realize that there that was the original site of the Chesterfield Baptist Church where there's a graveyard. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's there. And I'm like, I didn't even know that that was there. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I was reflecting on when you were just talking about like the idea of like transforming and indigenizing. So these are words that, like we've said, come from Andrew Walls. Um, and uh, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, part of the difficulty if you're an American is you, especially a white American or something, you tend to think that your culture is already Christian. And the danger of that is that you don't think that it needs to be transformed. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, and so I was just thinking about the fact that like it, it took me like I had to leave and come back and see Chesterfield again to see this history with new eyes. Um, and like in, in some ways, the same thing happened in my own faith. When I went overseas the first time, I said, you know, it brought into relief my own faith. And then I thought, uh, uh, you know, I was like, well. Uh, you know, it's maybe it's not. It's uh, self-evident that Christianity just looks like it did at First Baptist Ellisville. Um, and so, you know, and and one thing that I think that, you know, uh, that, that a lot of churches could benefit from um, and need is that transforming. Like we need to transform our, our, our like my culture, my the way that I was raised is not um, sort of immune from the need to be transformed. Um, and that's like that's one of the powerful ideas about Andrew Walls is he says, like, once the gospel goes into that other culture, it can critique the one from which it left. Um, and it's it's needed. Um, it's it's actually helpful because there's I think, you know, you brought this up at the end. But Walls uses the idea of like the different vantage points to see the stage. Um, mm-hmm. And in a sense, there's also different vantage points to see one another. Um, in light of what you see on the stage. And so you can look at other people and see their, what's good at them, but you can also be as a, as a, you know, as a, re, as a Christian brother and say, Hey, there's also things that you need to change. Um, so it was, it was cool to hear you talk a little bit about that and just like how close um, our stories are, but probably very different. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, I was wondering if you, you know, I don't want to take up uh, too too much of your time. I think we probably got, uh, if, we, if we stick to an hour, I got about another 15 minutes. I have so many questions uh, from your book, but even just talking to you, I I wondered, um, and I, if I can edit this out, actually, if this is too personal or something, uh, oh. but I, I was wondering, like, you know, I've been going to the journey and we, we've been looking at like ways in which we can bring our heritage into, even into our worship service. And it's always difficult. It's always hard to figure out, um, like how much of is, is sort of even too Catholic or too like old. Um, and everybody wants things that are new, but there's always this difficulty. Uh, and, and the journey's kind of going through even some demographic changes, um, and like Carlos is our new pastor and, you know, he has a different, um, look, outlook for like what worship should be like. And, um, at one time he wore, uh, during black history month, a, uh, an Egyptian cross and mm. it made, it made some people uncomfortable. Um, mm. and you know, some of the white people. So I, I wondered if this isn't too personal, if you could talk just a little bit, maybe about like what, um, like what has changed even like, even down to like, when you go to church, when you think about church, the worship service, the liturgy, um, what we say and how we act, like how has that been influenced by your study of Syriac Christianity and Coptic and Ethiopian Christianity? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean like I no, I, I appreciate that question. And, and man, like that's, I shout out to my man, Carlos. Cause that's, that's, that's my brother from another mother. That's, that's, that's my homie. And so I, and I'm, I, I remember actually, uh, you know, praying and talking with him during that whole discerning process. And I just, man, the journey is so lucky to have him. And, uh, yeah, like that's, man, that's just awesome. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, um, and it's, and it's funny too, because I, I run into similar, I, I mentioned I've been, I've been so much discipled by indigenous theologians like Richard Twist and, 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 uh, Terry LeBlanc and, and Andrea Smith and, 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 uh, and they, they, you know, they run into similar pushbacks, um, not only from white Christians, but even from other native Christians, you know, like other, uh, in fact, they tell me that's where they get the biggest pushback from it, when they try to contextualize worship, like they'll have Christian sweat lodges or Christian totem poles or, or, you know, uh, different indigenous traditions Well, they'll contextualize it and use it. And, and other native Christians, like they said, there will be sometimes the biggest opponents of it saying, no, you can't do that. That stuff is pagan. It's, you know, like, like, you know, you mentioned Pastor Carlos wearing a, wearing an onk and I certainly, you know, I wore an onk the day I got married. So I wear it all the time. And, and the funny thing is, is that, uh, actually Egyptian monasteries also use the ankh <laughs> symbol and there are actually ankhs and there's a picture of it in the book uh, from an Egyptian there's an ankh from an Egyptian monastery uh, from the 6th century where the Egyptians themselves contextualized this this uh, this pharaonic symbol uh, you know and it, and it has a similar meaning because it's the, it's, the, it's the symbol of life and and, and and isn't the cross the way to the life and so uh, but a lot of my indigenous friends when they get that kind of pushback uh, from anybody they'll say okay well you know, well, if we should, if we shouldn't wear an onk in a Christian way, or you know, do a do a sweat lodge in a Christian way, then I guess we should all stop putting Christmas trees up every year because you know that also has a, a pagan pre-Christian, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon Germanic, uh, you know, uh, pagan connotation to it, and in in and of itself was a was a Christian uh, contextualization, or the fact that we call the Lord's uh, Paschal Sunday every year, we call it Easter, and we use you know again a pagan uh, term. I mean, calling it Easter is like equivalent to calling calling it Shiva. Or or Ganesha or, you know, like any, I mean, honestly, it's like, it's that, you know, we could call it Horus or something. And we're just picking a pagan God and using it. Um, so like, uh, so, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's to your point earlier that, that again, all of us, you know, need to, um, 
you know, transform our cultures and also embrace our cultures as well, right? Like that's, that's the the two sides of what Walls talks about, and and but I think that is hard for a lot of um a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the dominant culture because it's like trying to explain water to a fish. Um, but, uh, but, um, but anyway, I mean, to your question though, like, yeah, that, I mean, that's that again, as I mentioned though, I, I mean, this is a, all, I mean, you know, this is the reality that, that, you know, all theology is cultural, right? All, all, all theology. I mean, you know, theology is a human work, right? It's, it's something that we do. Uh, and, and, and to be sure it's in response to what God has done in Christ and in, and through his word and his Holy spirit and, and, uh, and the Bible. And these are all universal things that God, you know, communicates to us through revelation, but theology is our response to it. And because it's a human work, it's in, it's, it's by nature cultural, it's culturally contextual. So there is no such thing as a, as an, ah, cultural or an, an uncultural theology or an, un, every, every style of worship, every, every style of doing church, every method or every ecclesiology or ministerial methodology or, um, you know, every, uh, yeah, every, every book, everything we create as human beings is cultural because we're doing it from our cultural context. And so, um, and so even as I mentioned, when I was younger, I'd, you know, I felt that my culture was wrong and I needed to reject it and I needed to embrace the Christian culture, you know, and to me, the Christian culture that I saw at Wheaton College was, was the culture of Michael W. Smith and, and, and DC Talk and Sandy Patty and, and, and the purpose driven life and, and, uh, you know, and, and it was white suburban American evangelical culture, which again was, uh, is, is a lot of it is good. I still listen to a lot of that and I still read a lot of that stuff. Um, but, uh, but again, it's, it's, you know, it's also, it's just as white middle-class suburban American, uh, just as much as, uh, you know, gospel music is black or just as much as, you know, Korean prayer services are Korean. And so there it's all culturally relevant. And so when I, uh, again, not rejecting other forms, but when I felt called to the Lord to really dig deeper and uh, embrace my own African American urban hip hop culture uh, in the same in, in the same way as as I was studying a lot of these ancient traditions, I also really connected with um, a lot of ancient uh, these ancient traditions as well. I, I remember actually when I was starting out grad school, and I I read um, you know one of the uh, one of the foremost, you know, one of the kind of maybe the godfathers of Syriac studies, Sebastian Brock, uh, in his book on Ephraim the Syrian, uh, in his book, The Luminous Eye, he he was talking about Ephraim uh, the Syrian and his his whole theological approach uh, and just the way in which Ephraim is really just so different from a lot of his fourth century contemporaries who wrote in Greek and Latin. And, you know, they were also, I mean, you know, the Cappadocians or Augustine or, you know, a lot of the theologians in the Roman Empire were very much affected by their Greco-Roman culture. And they did theology in a very Roman kind of way, which is not a bad thing. Um, but it's just, it's cultural. And in the same way, Ephraim did theology in a very Semitic Syriac kind of way, um, that, uh, you know, he talks about the, you know, the, his methodology of, you know, you, and I talk about this in the, in the book on Ephraim where his whole, uh, viewpoint of talking about Rozo, the, that Syriac word for like symbols and, and that being really a, th a theological approach and of Ephraim. And, um, and, and, and he really, uh, you know, he and I remember in that book, uh, Brock was just talking about the way that Ephraim does theology in a much more holistic, comprehensive way, where he understands God is communicating through symbols or rozo, which which include the scriptures, but also include creation. And uh, and again, I mean, I, I love sharing that with again talking about indigenous uh, Christians who want to figure out how to contextualize theology. Say, well, Ephraim was a huge proponent of using creation and uh, and and understanding how God speaks through creation. 
uh, and how creation is very active and alive and talking, which is something very uh, central to so many indigenous cultures that isn't so much in the in Western cultures. And so that's I mean, that's one example. But I, but I remember also Brock mentioning in that book that uh, Ephraim really uh, he calls him the ambassador to Asian Christianity. And, and, you know, in the book, you see, I kind of talk about how Syriac speaking missionaries went all throughout the Asian continent, you know, to Asia, as far as the Pacific Ocean and all the way down to the Indian Ocean as well to the subcontinent. And, and so in a way, that's kind of um, and a lot of those different uh, traditions really, again, build themselves off the Syriac tradition from Edessa or Ohoy. And, and its most prominent theologian uh, was Ephraim. And, and so he Brock says that, you know, for a lot of people from different cultures, like maybe Asian cultures today who want to maybe engage ancient theology, but in a way that's a little bit closer to their culture, Ephraim would be a really good um, kind of maybe addition or, or alternative that a lot of, you know, Christians today, especially coming from non-Western cultures, can really connect with. And I think that that's really, um, I think that's really, that really kind of first... I think empowered me to feel like, you know, well, yeah, you know, Sebastian Brock, kind of like how he's saying that Christians today, especially from other cultures uh, who are trying to figure out what theology and what contextual contextualization looks like in their culture today, uh, they can connect with other, you know, uh, non-Western theologians who did it in a very different way, like Ephraim. So in the same way, uh, black Christians uh, can also connect with these different theologians and also can connect with ancient theologians like Shenouda of Atreep, uh, who wrote in Coptic and did theology in a, in a different, you know, very Coptic kind of way. And or or can connect with Ethiopian theologians like Georgius of Sagla or Zaria Kov or Walata Petros. And that in the same way we can connect. And I and that's, you know, to your question about me personally, that that's been something I've done and have really um, have really engaged with, uh, you know, um, uh, I mean, one thing uh, about me and that's very similar to my my culture is that, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, and this is generalization, like and like all things, there's there's exceptions to them. But, you know, um, I, I one thing I love doing is, you know, evangelism and apologetics and really, really engaging people with the truth. I mean, that's something that I just think is a part of African culture and part of black culture. And, and as, as, as a person who has been trained both in the church world and in the academic world, but which, which governs itself predominantly by white uh, culture, one, I think one difference, and again, these are generalizations, but I think one difference between black and white culture uh, in general is that a lot of times black people can tend to be a lot more direct about things that white people can tend to be a little bit more indirect about, or can have a culture value of maybe being a little bit more, maybe passive or, or, or it can consider, consider to be rude. Like, Prime example, um, and Dave Chappelle, the comedian, jokes about this, but I think it's true that, you know, if you go into a black barbershop, it is not uncommon at all to hear people talking about, you know, politics and religion and, you know, who they voted for and who you think you should vote for and and just all kind of stuff that, again, in white culture would be probably considered to be rude to, you know, just be so openly and directly talking about these kind of things. And so, you know, um, and so, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, you know, sometimes feel like, oh, well, maybe there isn't, you know, maybe this isn't really the the way to engage. But yet again, if you go, we're from St. Louis, we know if you go to the Del Mar Loop on almost any given day, you'll see Hebrew Israelites out in the street. They'll be very much directly engaging people on, again, the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. And so that brings up in me my, my urban black desire to want to engage right back, right there on the street. And of course, in grace and in love and all that kind of stuff. But but I, I you know, I can't, my, my white training is telling me, no, 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 that's not the right way to do it. But when I read Shenouda, I see an example of, a, of, a, of an ancient Egyptian monk who was 
also very direct. I mean, he wrote a, a, a genre of literature that's unique to the Coptic language called um, logoi. I mean, of course, that's a Greek word, but the way he appropriates it in Coptic as a as a loan word of many, uh, that 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 uh, Greco-Coptic style of literature is unique to Shenouda, where he would make these public addresses, these sermons out in public in his monastery, and there'd be notables and and people from all over the surrounding villages that would come and they would uh they would um you know he would he would kind of declare these sermons and engage with heresies and paganism and which mostly much of it, a lot of it was egyptian paganism and he would try to defend the veracity of the christian faith in this very public kind of discourse way um and so that kind of like helped me to uh you know um really and a similar example of that is uh, really the first systematic theology uh ever written i'm actually working on a translation of it right now for this new project i'm working on with university of california press of of uh the uh, the um, 14th century theologian from Ethiopia, Georgius of Sagla, who wrote a book called the, the Book of Mystery, where again, he lays out a systematic theology or a comprehensive theology according to the Ethiopian tradition, where again, he's engaging belief systems and traditional religions in Ethiopia, and he's arguing directly for the veracity of the Christian faith. And so there's a there's a very, again, very, you, I might say, Afro-African tendency to, to, you know, really boldly and publicly and directly engage around the truth and, um, and defend the gospel. And I would say, lastly, another example of that, that that's one way in which I've really been encouraged to, in similar ways, but to kind of lean on these these ancient traditions and examples in Africa of, of Christian apologetics uh, and do it in new ways in, in my African-American context. But um, the last way that I'll mention also is one thing that's been really empowering to me uh, is is really leaning on African terminology for uh, in theological discourse because you know I mean we know we know this in, in academia you you get uh, introduced and inundated with all of this various European terminology like you know all you know all of these you know kind of Greek and Latin terms like hermeneutics and exegesis and 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 uh, you know um, uh, like pneumatology and and uh, and and perichoresis and and uh, and and kenosis and all these different terms, right? That some of which are biblical, but a lot of them aren't actually. And and all these Latin terms too, you know, and that uh, and you know, like terminus antiquim and terminus postquim, and and it's just kind of the accepted thing to do in academia to just throw Latin terms into everything and make it make it sound fancier, I guess. And and that's fine, you know. And even German and French terms, right? Like Zitzenleben, and um, you know, that's kind of the you know, that's just the accepted thing. So that's you know that's cool one thing that's kind of encouraged me actually that in the same way that 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 you know uh white academia on this side of the pond draws upon european languages to to i don't know to give itself a sense of um rootedness in the same way i'm like well you know in this you know people of african descent uh you know come from west africa and 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 we all kind of in a similar way root ourselves to the ancient civilizations of of east africa so you know i i like to think of uh, coptic and nubian and ethiopic as the as the greek and latin of africa uh just like the way that or maybe <laughs> greek and latin are the are the ethiopic and coptic of europe uh, or the western uh world because um and so i that's one thing i just have done just even honestly in my prayer life and in my uh, and in my devotional life and, and, in, and even in some of my writings now, I'm starting to get into a thing where I, um, I just really feel empowered to, um, you know, uh, really 
use theological terms and uh, for God or for, I mean, because again, even the terms that we use like heaven, hell, God, uh, these are all terms that really come from Nordic and, uh, uh, you know, paganism that was again itself a contextualization, right? Uh, and then, um, but, you know, so like, for example, I'll, I'll often use when I'm praying even, or even in, in some theological writings, uh, stuff I'm working on now, I'll, I'll even like, uh, instead of using the English word God, which itself, again, comes from uh, paganism uh, in Europe, uh, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying that's another example of cultural Christianity. I'll often use the uh, the Egyptian word for God that is used in Coptic text, which is Nuda. And uh, Nuda, again, is a, you know, is a, is, a, is, a, is an, uh, an indigenously Egyptian word, uh, is the, the word in, used in reference in the Coptic translation of the Bible and early um, Coptic literature and theology to use for, for God. Um, and I'll sometimes I'll or I'll even use the uh, Ethiopian name for God, uh, which uh, is Exi Aper, which ex which literally means the Lord of the land. And so um, and so sometimes I'll even, you know, uh, use Exi Aper instead of instead of the word God. Or I'll even meet some school of Hymenote, right? Hymenote is an Ethiopian word that means theology or doctrine or belief. Uh, and it's often used in place of the Greek word theology. And so I'll, that's another way that I've really connected um you know, with a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of this, this ancient uh, theology. And it's been really helpful and, and empowering even just in my, in my own personal devotional life and in my ministry uh, and in my, you know, uh, and also in, um, in even theological and uh, historical writing. Wow. Uh, I really, I mean, I really appreciate it. That's, uh, there's, there's a lot to, to chew on and think about there. Um, and certainly as a, as someone who loves, uh, Latin and my European languages, uh, you know, it, it, like when I f first read about uh, the Meacham school and I actually think at the introduction, I mispronounced, uh, Hamanot. <laughs> um, I just pronounced it how it, it sort of read to me in English, but, uh, but yeah, that's a great, that's a, so, so fascinating, uh, and, uh, and helpful way to think about what we can learn from uh, church history and, you know, from like really considering the, the breadth of Christian history as, you know, much bigger and much larger uh, than, uh, than we often give it credit for or uh, the way that we even organize it in a lot of our classes. Um, I have, you know, I, I think I sent you a couple of my questions and you answered a lot of them uh, and even anticipated them. I was going to ask about uh, Ephraim and Shanute uh, and a few of those others, and you have already covered that. So um, I won't keep you uh, any longer. Um, but, uh, but I really appreciate this. I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, this is a, you know, uh, that my listeners will enjoy this and our listeners will, uh, enjoy it. And that maybe, you know, maybe this will be a new way to get, uh, get some new voices in, uh, in our podcast and let people know about your great book. And so, uh, hopefully this is like a nice addition in a way to, to reading your book because we get to hear your heart and your passion. Um, and so that, that came out uh, very clear to me how much this not only, you know, not only have you done the hard work of the languages, the research, um, and, and all of that, but, but it's all driven by, um, your, your passion, uh, not only for the subject, uh, the history, but for people, um, and ultimately for God. So, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's an inspiration and it's great to hear it from your own voice. Um, and so I, you know, recommend, uh, the book, uh, and, uh, to, to our listeners. And so that's a multitude of all people, excuse me, a multitude of all peoples, uh, Vince Bantu, B-A-N-T-U. Um, so we'll put a link up to it, uh, on the, on the Facebook page when I, um, list it, but thank you, Vince. Um, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. This, this is a pleasure. Anytime. 
All right. Well, yeah, if, if, if I can snag you for another one, I can ask you some of my questions about what, what use does heretic have or uh, some of the other things about walls that I both love and then I'm also kind of like puzzled by. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, we got to do a part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a break. Uh, I know you've spent a lot of time online and, and hope maybe we can reconnect um, in, in a little while uh, if, you, uh, if you're in for more. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks, Vince. Um, I'm going to hit stop recording here.